The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. A reading from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Uh, my name is Frank Hitchings. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I want to add my welcome to that of Joe's. Uh, we are glad that you're here, whether you are a longtime member or a first-time visitor. We are glad that you're here. As we uh, begin this morning, uh, before we uh, look at this passage, uh, let's pray and let's ask that the Lord would uh, bless his word to our hearts, that our hearts would be changed, that indeed we would grow in grace. Let's pray. Father, I'm uh, reminded of the words of John Newton uh, regarding the gift of Scripture and the importance of Scripture, for he wrote, if we wander from Scripture in pursuit of either personal peace or, or future hope, that our search will always end in disappointment. We want to be a people, Lord, who don't wander from Scripture. As we start this new year, we want to be a people who draw near to you, who cherish your word, who are fed by your word, who delight in your word, who realize that indeed it is living and active, Lord, and that it can change our hearts. It can deepen our faith, it can deepen our repentance, that uh, through the miracle of your grace, people like us might be able to live lives that actually bring you glory. So we ask that you would use your word for that end in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Indeed, we're headed into a new year. Uh, it's a good thing uh, to pause and to give our attention not just to the year that's passed, but also to the year that's ahead. It's a good thing to pause and think, where are we headed? What are our hopes and our dreams for the new year? What will be our spiritual priorities, our spiritual aspirations uh, for 2023? And although that's certainly not the reason uh, that the author of Hebrews wrote this passage that we're looking at this morning, it can be very helpful to us as we work through those questions. The writer draws out this picture of living out our faith as if it were a race. And, and if you think about it, there are metaphors like that that are used throughout the scriptures to help us in our spiritual lives. I, I was thinking about the Apostle Paul this week and all the different metaphors he used for the Christian life. In Ephesians, he uses the metaphor of spiritual warfare. He calls us to put on the full armor of God. 
In Corinthians, he talks using the picture of a boxer. And in Galatians and in Philippians, he uses the same metaphor here, the metaphor of running a race, of running well, and of not running in vain. And the same is true in the author of Hebrews, using this metaphor of running a race. When I was uh, thinking this past week about Uh, opening illustrations about this passage, about pictures of this passage, of what it's warning us about, I couldn't help but think about the freeze. Now, I'm not thinking about last week here in Chattanooga. I'm thinking about the Atlanta Braves baseball game. How many Braves fans do we have out there? Y'all watch the games? Yeah. You've probably seen him, maybe only briefly, but you've seen him. He's known as the freeze. He dresses in full-body turquoise spandex with, with masks on included, and he provides between-innings entertainment as he races fans, chosen fans, from foul pole to foul pole across the warning track. He gives the, the fan that's chosen randomly Uh, from the group uh, that's there for the game. He gives them a generous head start, a head start that looks like it's so far that it'll be insurmountable, but the guy can run. The promotion originally was for these frozen drinks that racetrack gas stations stock. They're called the Freeze, and they thought the runner, we'll call the runner the Freeze, and we'll dress him up like an Icy. And the fan will try to beat the Freeze. And, And the popularity of this this uh, 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 between-innings entertainment, it gained so much uh, in the last few years. A Braves fan uh, seemed to get a little cocky. If you, if you Google it, you can find these videos, this Braves fan that was really running well. This fan that looked like the freeze is not going to catch him. This fan got a little cocky. He was right almost to the finish line. He was within you know, five or six steps of the finish line. He's running so well, it looks like he's going to beat the freeze, and suddenly, with a few yards to go, do you remember what he did? He raised his arms up to the crowd like, look at me, come on, yell for me. And when he did, the freeze was like, "Uh uh-uh, not on my watch, blew past him, and the young man did a face plant in the dirt before the finish line. It is a classic. It's a great warning of this passage. How you race really matters. Where you look when you race spiritually, when you run the race of faith, where you look really matters. So before we come to the Lord's table this morning, let's spend a few minutes in this passage and look as we face the new year, as we think about continuing our race of faith, what is it that we're to do? Well, this passage is helpful there. If you look in your outline in your bulletin, the first thing it says is we're to remember the great cloud of witnesses. The writer starts with this, therefore, signaling to what he's just said, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, just pause there. He's pointing us back to chapter 11. He's pointing us back to that chapter that contains all those people who faithfully ran the race before us. We don't have time to go back through the passage, but it reads like an Old Testament hall of fame. From Abel to Enoch to Noah to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to Moses, it just goes on and on. And the writer is saying, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's do the following. But it's so easy to misunderstand what he's saying here. Here's what he's not saying. 
He's not saying that all these great heroes of the faith are sitting up in heaven as spectators watching us run our race. Some commentators suggest that. Some study Bibles even say that. But nowhere else in all of Scripture do we see that taught. Remember the cardinal rule of interpreting Scripture? Scripture interprets Scripture. We've all heard people say, you know, when someone that we love passed away, we all heard people say, you know, I just know mom's watching this from heaven and she's loving every minute of it. We hear people say that, but is that biblical? Is that what he's trying to say here? There's actually a very popular uh, and moving country song. I listen to lots of different kinds of music. I was reflecting on this from years ago. Some country songs are just great and some are just theologically horrible. This is one of the latter. It's called Holes in the Floor of Heaven. And it won all the awards when it first came out as Song of the Year a few years ago. And it's this typical country song. There's this little boy. He's on his eighth birthday and it's pouring down, raining outside, as it should be in all great country songs. And he's missing his grandmother who recently passed away. And the chorus says this, Grandma's watching you today because there's holes in the floor of heaven and her tears are pouring down. Now just think about this. The rain represents Grandma's tears. She's in heaven crying, right? That's how you know she's watching, wishing she could be here now. And sometimes if you're lonely, just remember she can see there's holes in the floor of heaven and she's watching over you and me. It's this emotionally moving country song. People loved it, but it's horrible theology. There's nothing biblical about it. That's not what the writer of Hebrews means. He's, he's, there's a huge difference between being a witness and a spectator. Spectators watch. Witnesses testify to things. What the writer's saying is this great cloud of witnesses testifies to the faithfulness of God in each one of their lives this great cloud of witnesses they serve as an example of great persevering faith not perfect faith but persevering faith he's saying we're to run like they ran always trusting never giving up even after failure overcoming obstacles and hardships all the while looking to the Lord looking for his grace that he might strengthen us for the race that's what he's saying he's not saying they're standing around in the galleries of heaven watching us run our race I love how Kent Hughes addresses this idea he says the idea here is not that we should be faithful lest they be disappointed or that we should try to impress them like a sports team tries to impress the fans and the bleachers. These are witnesses to God and his faithfulness, not of us. They're examples, not onlookers. I think he's right. And, and I was thinking this week, the whole thought of having a gallery of great heroes of the faith whether they're biblical heroes of the faith or even just heroes of the faith in my life that have finished the whole thought of having them look through the floor of heaven holes in the floor of heaven it wouldn't motivate us it would probably paralyze us not to mention the fact that would you really want to be in heaven seeing all the struggles that we have down here so the writer's saying look at their lives 
Look at how God was with them, strengthening them, encouraging them in their faith, leading them, directing them throughout their lives. Let that be an encouragement to us as we run our race of faith. So that's where he starts here. He says, remember the great cloud of witnesses, study their lives, learn from their lives. But secondly, he says this, throw off all hindrances and entangling sin. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. He's calling us to, to lay aside two things here. The, the first is every weight. Uh, the, the NIV, the old NIV says, everything that hinders, hindrances, weights, anything that dampens our enthusiasm enthusiasm for the things of God. Doesn't have to be a bad thing, could even be a good thing. A good thing that may have become too important in our lives. I remember uh, studying James, the book of James years ago, and there's that great passage in James, if you're taking notes, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, when he's talking about temptation. And, and um, when we're tempted, it says, uh, but each one of us, when we're tempted by our own evil desire, we're dragged away and enticed. The evil desire, the word translated evil desire is this Greek word epithumia, meaning over-desire. It's not, there, there's no prefix for evil there. It's over-desire. It can even be a good desire that's become an ultimate desire. And I think that's what the writer here is saying. Doesn't have to be bad. It could be a good thing. It could be a friendship that may be hindering our progress with the Lord. It could be a hobby. The question we have to ask ourselves, or we need to ask ourselves, is as we start this new year, what's weighing us down? we try to draw closer to the Lord not just the bad things we'll get to those but even the things that are good that have become ultimate things I was reading uh, this week a, a wonderful book uh, written by Nancy Guthrie about 15 years ago it's a Bible study on the book of Hebrews it's called hoping for something better refusing to settle for life as usual and in that in that Bible study she addresses the question of hindrances and she suggests that for some of us a hindrance could be guilt over something in our past or anxiety over something in the future or unforgiveness of someone that's hurt us or offended us or unmet expectations of ourselves and of others or even disappointment with God for how life is playing out. And she points out that for the writer, uh, for the original recipients of this letter, the Jews that received it, the weight was most likely the weight of legalism for them. They grew up under a very much of a law-keeping environment. They had to keep the law. They had to produce their own righteousness. And they, when they discovered the gospel, they had a hard time of letting go of the law as a measure of their righteousness. They had a hard time of resting in the righteousness of Christ that was given to them. The do's and don'ts of religion sucked the joy and the life out of faith. What's hindering our pursuit? As we start this new year, what's hindering our pursuit of God? Nancy's other suggestions that I found interesting the way she addresses this, she says, 
What's wrong with watching borderline trashy reality TV? Nothing, perhaps, unless it dampens our passion for godly relationships and godly values. What's wrong with a drink now and then? Nothing, perhaps, unless it diminishes our thirst for God's word and destroys our credibility of the gospel. What's wrong with loving to shop? Nothing, perhaps, unless it nurtures our love for the comforts of this life more than our longing for heaven. So there's the question. What is it that we're holding on to that really, uh, even good things, that have become hindrances to our pursuit of drawing near to God? The writer's saying we're to identify those things. But not just that, he says, and also the sin that clings so closely the sin that so easily entangles, the NIV says. And, and I think what he's talking about there is the sin that we just repeatedly fall into, the ones that continue to trip us up. You might call them our besetting sins. Mine probably are very different than yours. It might be jealousy. It might be criticism or envy or anger or lust. It might be pride or covetousness or laziness or unthankfulness, or perfectionism. Whatever it is, the writer seems to know that we'll all have sins, certain sins that you and I are prone to, especially prone to. And he's saying here we need to identify those sins so that can we do battle with those sins. Got to keep going here. So as we face a new year, as we continue our race of faith, we're to remember the great cloud of witnesses. We're to throw off all the hindrances and all the entangling sin. And then thirdly here, we're to run with persevering endurance. He ends that, that first sentence or that first verse, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which easily, which, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set out before us. You know, I was, I was uh, we turn our outlines in. When you hit Christmas, there's so many bulletins that are printed. We turned our outlines in, Brian and I did, several weeks ago. And, and we, I'm not sure we were as focused uh, in our English language usage as we should have been. Run with persevering endurance. Is there any other way to run? Like, it's a little bit redundant, isn't it? And at first I was thinking, I wish we had a better word for that than persevering endurance. I don't know what the opposite of that would be like lackluster endurance. But in hindsight, I really like the fact that we're kind of repeating ourselves there. We're making the writer's point. After we throw off things that hinder us, after we throw off the sin that so easily entangles us, what are we supposed to do? The writer says, run. Run the race of faith with endurance. Run the race marked out for us with perseverance. He's implying, really, that each of us has a specific course the Lord's marked out for us. We're to run it with perseverance. For some of us in this coming year, it might be a course that's relatively straight and flat. For others of us, it might be very winding and hilly. But we're to run with perseverance. Run with patience. I love what William Barclay wrote in his commentary on endurance you know, just kind of defining what does endurance look like. He says this, endurance is determination, unhasting, 
and unresting, unhurrying and yet undelaying. It goes steadily on. It refuses to be deflected. Obstacles will not daunt it. Delays will not depress it. Discouragements will not take its hope away. It will halt neither for discouragement from within nor for opposition from without. It's a great picture of what does it mean to run with endurance? And how do we do that? How do we run our race of faith with endurance? He really answers that in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder, the author, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we run? We run fixing our eyes on Jesus. There's an entire sermon probably right there in that verse, but we have to make sure we at least don't miss the main point here. As we run with endurance, where are we to look for encouragement? Does the writer of Hebrews want us to look solely at the lives of those who've gone before us at the great cloud of witnesses of chapter 11? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying if we really want to persevere in our race of faith, if we really want to run our race well and not run in vain, then yes, we're to look back to the faithful ones who have gone before us and learn from their, from their lives, from studying their lives, but we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. We can't be looking around at others always looking at others or always looking inside ourselves fix our eyes on Jesus I remember some of y'all have seen this movie probably that came out many years ago called Chariots of Fire about the Olympics in 1924 and the story of Eric Little and there's another runner in in that movie a, a, a Jewish fellow named Harold Abrams and in his whole life is about running he loses a race and he hires world-renowned running coach, a man named Sam Musabini. And the first thing Sam does is he gets a film of Abram's last race that he, that he lost and he shows Harold that film. And he's reviewing that film and he pauses it and he says, this is the exact point where you lost the race. You were ahead until right here. Right here, you took your eyes off the finish line and you looked at the other competitors and that's when you lost the race. That's when you were beaten. Like the Braves fan racing the freeze, as soon as he turned to look at the crowd and to start to celebrate, he does a face plant. He took his eyes off the prize. If you watched the Georgia game last night, which I'm assuming... Some of y'all stayed up and watched the Georgia game halfway through the second quarter. By the way, I'm so glad Georgia won because I can't imagine Brian preaching this morning downstairs had been another outcome. But in the second quarter, when Georgia was down 21 to 14, Kenny McIntosh gets the ball. He's 65 yards from the, uh, from the end zone. He takes off running. He breaks through. He is home free. He gets to the 10-yard line. There's nobody even close to him, and he turns to look and see if anybody's close to him, and he face plants before the end zone. The announcer said the turf monster got him. I loved it. 
He took his eyes off the prize. It just takes a second. And the writer here is saying, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. All racers know you can't take your eyes off the prize to look at others. You can't take your eyes off the prize to compare yourself to how others are running. But that's our natural tendency, isn't it? His race is just so much easier than mine. If my life were like his, I'd be running the race of faith better too. She didn't even seem to have to work very hard at it. Everything just comes easy for her. That man is so far ahead of where I am, I will never catch up. We compare ourselves to others or we do the opposite and we arrogantly think the opposite. I'm running so well, I don't really need to challenge myself in the year that lies ahead. Here's what the writer of Hebrews would say. If we want to run our race of faith well in the year that's to come, we have to Resist the temptation to look outwardly at others and compare ourselves. Resist the temptation to look inwardly all the time or to look back at our paths and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, whom he says here, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was that joy? The joy that was set before him Certainly it was the joy of completing the work the Father gave him before the foundation of time. The work of taking on flesh. The work of living a perfectly righteous life under the law. The work of fully reconciling a sinful people to a holy God through his righteous life and through his atoning death. The joy of redeeming a people for the glory of God people like you and me a joy so strong the writer says that he endured the cross and scorned its shame because his redemptive work was finished I love the question and I've I've shared it with you before the question that I heard many years ago uh, that Tim Keller asked I've never forgotten it it's such a simple question and yet I didn't know the answer to it when I first heard the question He talks about the perfect fellowship that Jesus uh, enjoyed with the the Father and with the Spirit in heaven prior to the incarnation. He talked about all the glories of heaven that he enjoyed prior to the incarnation. Then he said this, what did Jesus have, he asked this question, after the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, when he went back to heaven, what did he have that he didn't have before he started that journey of of incarnation he's sitting at the right hand of God he's enjoying perfect fellowship with the Trinity again but what does he have now that he didn't have then and I honestly had no idea I was like I don't know where you're going and the simple answer is what does he have now that he didn't have then he has you and he has me that's the gospel reality that compels us to fix our eyes on Jesus as we run our race of faith. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we head into the 2023rd year of our Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would help each of us to pause and consider our heart's true ambitions, our heart's 
true affections and allegiances to make sure that Jesus is indeed at the center of our lives. We want our hearts, Lord, to be fixed upon him. Not merely affiliated with him, not merely interested in him or associated with him, but fixated on him. We want to be united to him through ever-deepening faith, through continually enabling grace. We want to be giving ourselves fully to him and letting go of all the hindrances and the sin and whatever distracts us from him. Our prayer as we enter this new year simply is, Lord, that you would work in our hearts to that end. That the gospel realities, that the joy set before him involved reconciling us, that that reality would sink deep in our hearts and that we would truly desire to live for his glory. We ask this in his saving name alone. Amen.